This time I ask you to turn with you in your Bibles to Exodus 40. And uh, Owen and Willem, you can go ahead and hand out those. Do you have them? You already did it. What did you do it? Like sneaky. Okay. Great. It's unusual that I have a handout, but I think it's the second time only that I've done it. But um, hopefully it will be helpful as we're just going through some, some larger uh, overviews again. So let's read Exodus 40, starting at the end of the book, and we'll be reading into Leviticus. This is about the glory of the Lord and then moving into the tabernacle. Exodus 40, starting at page or verse 34, going into Leviticus. This is God's word. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whether the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Then the next two verses. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Once again, Lord, as we come to your word, we know it is our anchor, it is our rock, it is our source of life and direction. And so, Spirit, we, we know that we cannot be moved if, if you are not working in us. And so we come asking you to help us. Would you give us a hunger to know your word and to see your promises in action, but then not just to have a deeper understanding, but that would lead to a deeper love and passion for you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you enter through the back of my house, you would see hanging up a sign. The sign is a rectangle. It's, it's several feet long and a foot and a half wide or so. It's, it has camo background and it has black letters that say, Welcome home. Welcome home. That was the sign that was on the back of my house when I came back from deployment. Some of you were there. They had flags waving to greet me. And, and I came back and I saw the kids and they were all dressed up. And, and there's that sign that said, Welcome home. Now, I've had many homecomings in my military. I've had nine stays of five days or more in the hospital, then I had my 23-day of stay of CAR-T, even, even a dialysis where I'm just gone for the morning and come back. In some ways, that's a, that's a homecoming. And when I come in, I, if I notice it, I see that sign that says, Welcome Home. And there's something special about homecoming. I, I remember one week, just a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was coming back from dialysis and the kids were playing and it was cleaning day. It must have been Saturday. Elizabeth was vacuuming and just kind of continuing to take the, the chaos and turn into order and making our house a home. And, and I just came in and thought, oh, this is beautiful. And we, we had our worship and then we read poetry together. It was, it was homecoming. It was homecoming. Well, for most of you, Leviticus seems like the exact opposite of homecoming, right? I called it the the graveyard of Bible reading plans a few weeks ago. And that might be how it seems to you. But once you understand Leviticus, at least in some ways, it should be like a big welcome sign pointing back to life in the presence of God. 
Now, this is the last sermon where we're going to spend significant time outside of Leviticus. After this, we are going to get into the text and we're going to be marching through. So if you're just thinking, man, we're just moving so fast and over all these arcs, just by the time we get to chapter 15 and we're Milda, you'll be praying for one of these sermons. okay? but but, which is one more. I I found it very helpful for me to to, to kind of have this introductory, this, this is kind of building the framework, the story so that we can understand these sacrifices. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're, we are actually going to go back to Genesis one more time. But instead of starting there, we're going to first start in Leviticus. And I wanted to show you how it is in many ways the center of the Pentateuch. And, and then we'll look at some time becoming familiar with the tabernacle. And then we'll go back to Genesis and see how the tabernacle is a return to creation, especially Sabbath rest. And by the time we're finished, I pray that you will see that Leviticus is a homecoming. So let's start um, with Leviticus and the center. Now, let's look at the big picture. The, the entire narrative structure of the Pentateuch naturally focuses you on Mount Sinai and, and Leviticus, where the tabernacle is. The sheer amount of pages tells you, look at this. I know for us, as we're doing our Bible reading plans and you're plowing through, it might slow you down and you get stuck. But that repetition is actually saying this is important. Remember that they didn't write and they didn't have printing and they didn't write in books. They had scrolls. And it was laborious and it was costly. You wrote an animal hides. And so more space actually meant this is more important. Stop. Look at this. And I want you to see how Leviticus and Sinai are at the center. So if you have your Bible, if you have a physical Bible, you know, keep your finger in Leviticus 1, but then you just go to page 1 of your Bible, Genesis 1. So put your finger in Genesis 1, and then you can flip to Exodus 19. That's where the Sinai story starts. Okay, and that's page 60. And then you go, so have a finger there. And then you go beyond Leviticus to Numbers chapter 10. That's where the people leave Sinai. And you kind of put another break there. And then you can go to the end of Deuteronomy. And you kind of see, and you you can see in your own Bibles or even up here, it's almost broken into thirds. In fact, now I was just using the English Bible, but for the ESV, there's there's 177 pages in the Pentateuch and 153 chapters. And the length of time in Sinai is 59 pages and 59 chapters, which is really dead center of some of the third of the whole text of the first five books. And it's right in the middle. It's saying this is important. And, and then commentators have noticed, if you look in figure one, they've noticed uh, just a theme these five books are meant to be read together. And so Genesis and Deuteronomy are the bookends. It starts and it finishes the story of, of the, the Pentateuch. Obviously, there's, there's much more to go, but we should look at this together. And then Exodus has you leaving the Egypt and building the tabernacle. Numbers shows you dedicating the tabernacle and leaving Sinai, preparing to enter Canaan. And then right in the middle, you see this tabernacle service in Leviticus. You see how Leviticus is the center, and it's centered around the tabernacle. Figure two, I'm not going to spend time in this, but if you want on your own, you can actually look at this and just see how there are these literary segments that that highlight the Pentateuch, set them off, sorry, Sinai, set it off and say, this is important. By the way, all of these except for figure three come from Michael Morales' book that, that I've been using. And thanks to my wife who made these look nice. It's a lot nicer than if I had written these up. So she, she produced these for me. 
So you see it's, it's the thematic center, it's, it's the, the, the chunk in the middle is the center. There's also these, these time references that kind of help you slow down and appreciate that something's different here. So, so from Genesis 1 to the Passover, which is Exodus 10, time is measured in years. Years, makes sense. And, and then once you leave Sinai from Numbers 10 to Deuteronomy 34, once again, time is measured in years. But from Passover to Sinai, it slows down and it's measured in months. And it's not just to slow the time down, but months evokes the idea of the Feast of Passovers, Weeks and Booths. It's the liturgical year. It's telling you something special is happening here. And then when you get to Leviticus itself, there's no time reference with regard to the, the, the greater story. There's, there's one or two chapters where it says the next day, but that's it. It's, not, it's, not, it, it's, it's almost timeless with respect to the Pentateuch. It's like time stops. And in fact, in Exodus... 40, verse 17, it says, on the first month of the seventh year, second year on the first day, the tabernacle was erected. No time references in Leviticus. And in Numbers 1.1, the next verse, it says, on the first day of the second month in the second year. There's just one month has passed. And so there's all these markers that are saying, slow down. This is important. We need to camp out here. And I spend some time just mentioning these things because I think it's helpful to appreciate how scripture is inspired, but God uses beautiful literature and devices to actually show us what his, what his purpose is. And you might have heard of the JDEP. It's, it's a basically a hypothesis that there are these four, um, these four streams of writing, and you can tell by the language which one it is. And some editor later on took these four, and, and out comes the Pentateuch and kind of pasted it together. When you look at these, these graphs and what we're looking at, this is, this is not something that was a chop job that was put together. This is a beautiful piece of writing that God inspired, and, and it is consistent, it's coherent, it's the message of God's unrelenting grace. And we see that all of this beautiful literary device is to point us to the tabernacle in Leviticus. So let's take a bit of a tabernacle tour. It's the reason Leviticus is special is because it centers on the tabernacle. And if the tabernacle is the homecoming, you need to be familiar with the only building in the Pentateuch. Now, after my second deployment in 2009, actually before my second deployment, it was 2009, Elizabeth and I bought a house in Allentown before I left. We had been living in a condo in Sellersville, which was half, halfway between Westminster and, and where my church was. And so we just decided, let's just, let's just buy a house near the church. It wasn't working out well for us. And so we bought it before I deployed, but we didn't move into it until after I shipped out. So I walked through, I signed the papers, but I didn't help with the moving. The church did that, the family did that. And so when I came home for, for leave the next uh, summer, I remember sitting in my chair and thinking, wow, this is, this is my new house. And then that night when, when I got up for the first time in the middle of the night, I walked into a wall. Because my mind was still used to the other layout of the condo. And you can do the same thing. If, if you don't know what's the layout of the tabernacle, you're going to be walking into walls, so to speak, as we talk about the various sacrifices. So it's time, it's, it's helpful just, just to look at it a little bit. All right, so figure three, you can, you can look at, we're not going to go to Exodus 35 or 38, but it describes everything that you see here. And so let's just look at the region. So you, you have the outer region, which, which has the outside, the, uh, the outside um, partition, right? And, and by the way, all the units are in cubits, so that's about a foot and a half. So really, um, if, the, if the tabernacle is 50 by 100 cubits, it's, you know, 50 by 100 half yards, which 
would be what? A quarter of a football. It would be about, you know, half as long as a football field and half as wide as a football field, so a quarter of a football field. So it's big, but not huge. And so as you go from, from east to west, notice the direction's important. You go in, you know, you, you, you move towards increasing holiness. And so you have the altar. There would actually be an ash pit in front of that. It's mentioned not as much, but that's where all the unclean things would be thrown. And then there's the altar. And then there's, there's the bronze basin where the priests would do some of the washings. And then you move into the holy place and you see the, the, the golden table where the bread would be put and, and the golden lampstand, the menorah and the, the golden altar for the instance. And then you'd have the holy of holies at the back where you'd have the ark of the covenant and the cherubim right there overshadowing it. Um, two other things to note that, that you would see that there's an increase of, of quality of material. So as you go from east to west, you go from, from bronze to gold and the furniture. It's, it's talking about the increase of the holiness. And I think it's also likely, commentators think, that the three areas roughly correspond to the way people viewed the world back then, with the earth and, and then the sky and then the invisible heavens. And so you see in in the outer court, the, the altar and, and the bronze basin, which would be also seen as the sea. And then as you move into the holy place, you'd have the stars and the purple curtains, which would seem like the sky. And then in the holy of holies is the place where God dwells, which you can't see, the, the angelic realm where the cherubim are. And, and that's, that's a little bit of a layout of the tabernacle. So what's so special about Leviticus? Well, it's in Leviticus that the tabernacle becomes a tent of meeting. Now, there are two names for the sanctuary. Uh, the tabernacle, that's the one that, that I use, and I think most people probably call it that. It just means dwelling or tent. And then the tents of meeting. And both of these tell you something about God's purpose for his people. Listen to Exodus 25.8 when God gives Moses a command. Let them make me a sanctuary, literally a holy place, that I may dwell with them. Right? The word for dwell in the Hebrew is shakan and the root word, it's the root word for the tabernacle, Mishkan. You hear the Shekan, Mishkan. It's the place where God dwells with his people. The goal is for God to live in their presence. But it's also the tent of meeting. And the Hebrew phrase is Ohel Moed. Ohel simply means tent, and then Moed is a more complex word. It either means appointed times, such as festivals, or, or the time for festivals, or more often meeting place. So Moed... Uh, occurs 160 times in the Pentateuch, and 135 of it simply means tent of meeting. And the majority of the rest either are pointing, uh, talking about the times for the festivals or the festivals itself. And, and so this word moed, almost always in the Pentateuch, has to do with God meeting with his people in a special way. And so these two names then for the sanctuary, the tabernacle and tent of meeting, are overlapping terms, and yet they have different emphasis. The, the tabernacle is the holy place where God's glory dwells with his people, and then the tent of meeting is the place where God's people has fellowship with him. And the end of Exodus actually shows a distinction and introduces a problem. Right? The glory of the Lord fills the temple, or the tabernacle, probably the Mishkan, but Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting, O Hel Moed. The Lord is present but he's too holy for even Moses to enter his presence, and it will take the sacrifices of Leviticus to make a way for God's people to meet with him. Now, interestingly enough, both Exodus and Numbers on either side of Leviticus use both terms, tabernacle, tent of meeting, almost um, the same amount. But Leviticus only uses tabernacle three times, but tent of meeting 43 times. So what, what do you get there? That, 
This is where God is going to meet with his people. And, and this is why the tabernacle is a homecoming, because it's a return to God's presence. So now I want you to see, I want you to see now how God connects the tabernacle and his creation and Eden together in a way that reinforces this idea of homecoming. So turn with me to Genesis 1. Now we've already talked at length about how there's connections between the tabernacle and Eden with the cherubim and, and the, the holy place and the golden stones and the, the, the tree and the rivers and mountains and all those things. Um, if you turn over to your, your chart, um, figure four, we're, we're not going to look into that, but if you want to look at there's some more parallels between creation and Moses creating the tabernacle. I mentioned that in Sunday school, but I put that, that chart in there again if you hadn't seen it or you want to look at it. But what I want to do is flesh out one more parallel between creation and the tabernacle. And here I'd like to focus on sacred time. Now, you're probably familiar with the, the, the six days of creation and then God arresting that there's parallels between days one and three and, and then four and six. It says the, the world was form and void, or you could say uninhabitable and uninhabited. And so in days one through three, God makes it habitable. And then in days four through six, he, he puts in the animals, the creatures, and then humanity as the pinnacle uh, of that creation. And you see that in figure five. Just to, re- to review there, I, I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. I think it's there. You see church, a Christian interpretation throughout church history, seeing those. But there's also another way to structure these days, and that's sacred time. And I want to explore this a little bit more. It does take a little bit of Hebrew. I can't flesh this out completely, but I think it's enough that it can be helpful. So look at figure six. So now in figure six, you still have the, the habitation and the inhabitants, the, the water and the sky and the fish and the birds and the land, the vegetations, animals and humanity. But then you see how seven is moved in so that you have days one, four and seven focusing on time. And this would be another literary form called a chiasm, an X, right? When you have you have a top and a bottom, you have something in the middle that, that it's pointing out. So on day one in creation, God establishes time. Right. That's that's the top on day seven. God sets apart. He sanctifies a day as holy. That's the Sabbath. That's the bottom. But what about the middle? What about day four? Well, this is one of the times where where it is helpful to know Hebrew. Um, God makes the lights. Let's let's read from verse 14 on just for day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, the Hebrew word for light there is ma'or, and or is light, and so ma'or is just is, an, is, is the way that this uses that word for light. It, it happens 15 other times in the Pentateuch outside of day four in creation. And every other time that you see ma'or, it is in the tabernacle. It's either the lights that are coming from the lampstands or the lamps. Now, it's not the lampstand itself, which is actually in Hebrew, it's menorah, so we get that translated right over. It's not, not the lampstands, but it's either the lights 
or the lamps that are on top of the lampstands. And so a, a, a better translation might be here, let there be lamps or, or let there be luminaries. This is tabernacle imagery. And once again, you see how creation and tabernacle are related. It doesn't say that he puts the, the torches or the stars in the heaven. It's the lights from the tabernacle. And what are the purpose of those lights? Well, it's to rule the day, right? Time, again, day and night. But why is that? Well, in verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. The Hebrew is moedim. Now, if, if, uh, moedim is the plural of moed, from which we got tent of meeting. This is once again either tabernacle language or sacred time. And in fact, look at the ESV footnote. If you have an ESV for 14, at least in my version, there's a footnote. Instead of seasons, it says, or appointed times. So this should not be translated as seasons, as in spring, summer, winter, fall. It would be best understood as appointed times for feasts, for caustic feasts or festivals. Uh, the, today's New International Version translates it this way. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Now, just a note, the TNIV is a bit suspect theologically. There's, there's some translation decisions that they make that are not good. I wouldn't use it as a study Bible in general, but I believe they have an accurate, perhaps a more accurate translation for this verse. And what you see here is that God is creating the world as a place where he can meet with his people right from the beginning. Right? This reminds us that the world is, was viewed as, as God's temple, as his house, and the temple was to remind us uh, of creation. That's why the, star, the, the lights in the temple remind you of the stars as you're looking in, and, and the stars in creation are described in terms of the temple's lights. And so God has created this world to meet with us. And even the rulers of the sky call us to worship. They mark times and days so we can worship him. So when does this happen? What's, what's so special about the t- this day then? Well, it finds its culmination then in day seven. Right? The, the, the creation finds its culmination on the Sabbath. You can note all the repetitions here. There's seven paragraphs. There's seven days. Seven speeches of God ending in Sabbath. Interestingly, when, when Moses is told about how to build the, parag- the, the, the um, tabernacle, there's seven speeches ending in the Sabbath in Exodus. Uh, Genesis 1-1 has a seven-word sentence in Hebrew. Genesis 1-2 has a 14-word sentence in Hebrew. There's this idea that seven is important. And then when you get to the Sabbath day, it's mentioned three times. And it's the one thing in the book that is set apart in Genesis as holy. And, and so we see here that the Sabbath rest is the special day. And so God creates... Time and the lights of heaven to call us into the appointed times to meet with him. And, and that culminates on the Sabbath. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this, you might think that sounds a little bit stretched. I've, I've, never, I've never heard that before. And actually, that's, when I started studying it, that's, that's kind of my impression too. Uh, first of all, I found that there was, and I first found this by listening to a Jewish teacher. I'm thinking, okay, that might be helpful, but I, I'd like to see a little bit more. And then I started looking into some standard evangelical commentaries, and they said, no, this, this, this looks like it's here. Um, right? There's, there's the chiasm, that there's, kind of, there's a kind of a focus on day four between one, four, and seven. But then if you look at figure seven, there's also within day four, there's some structure that gives us a clue here. 
there's, there's these, these prepositions, the Hebrew lamb, and it can be used many different things, but each one of these is started by, started, begun by these prepositions. And, and you see how there's similarities that, that move into the lights are to rule the day and, and to rule the night. But what does ruling mean then? Well, if you, if you look at the bottom line, B prime, right, to rule the day and night by 18a, well, if you look at that, the, the mirror of that up top for B is for signs and for the appointed times for days and years. And, and so what this, what this is saying is, is this is, again, tabernacle language. It's saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't think of this as in fall, spring, season, winter, but tabernacle imagery at the heart of creation is God's desire to dwell with us. I'm not going to turn there, but if you write down Leviticus 23, you can just look. There is tabernacle, Sabbath, and, and lamps all within a couple of chapters because you see that cluster. So why do I spend time talking about this? This is a deeper dive than I normally go because I want you to see how firmly the tabernacle is a return to God's presence, a plan for him to dwell with his people in Sabbath rest from the beginning. Right? Sabbath as we have it today, it's, it's a rest and that's wonderful, but it's more than that. It means God's presence himself. And, and that is why in all these ways, I, just, I spent a little time showing you just one way that creation is described perhaps as God's house to, to call us into worship. This is... This is God's plan. It's not like God was a deistic watchmaker who, who wound up the universe and just walked away. He's, he's not, it's not a science experiment where, where God is this dispassionate observer just kind of looking there and taking notes. God is here in this world where he dwells and acts with his people to meet with us. And, and the Garden of Eden is the, is the concentrated place of God's fellowship. And in Leviticus, through the sacrifices, that's where we return to that fellowship. And so I want you to see how Leviticus is a homecoming. Even though we're in a different place in redemptive history, even though that some things of these have been fulfilled in Christ, it reminds you of your birthright. Leviticus is focused on the tabernacle, and the tabernacle reminds you of creation and where you were designed to live in the presence of God. And so it is a homecoming. So how do we apply this? Well, I pray that just walking through and connecting Scripture in some way is an application. It's part of a very diet of application and preaching. We wouldn't want to do this all the time. But, but for us to see how God works and from going from one way to another. But I also want you to see how this is, this is showing us that God really does have one plan throughout history. This continuity shows how God is working. Uh, we've, we said the first three, we, we recited the first three parts of the paragraphs of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm going to go ahead and read five and six. Just listen to this as it's talking about the covenant and how God works. The most wise, righteous and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season. That's the wrong chapter. This Here we go. This covenant was differently administered in the times of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifice, circumcision, the Passover lamb, and the other types of ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for the time sufficient and efficacious, though the operation of the Spirit, through the operation to Spirit, to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sin and eternal salvation, and is called the Old, Tovenant, Old Testament. Under the gospel, where Christ is the substance, was exhibited, 
The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed in the preaching of the word and the administration of sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administration with more simplicity and yet outward, less outward glory, yet in them is held forth in more fullness of evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, is called the New Testament. And listen to this. There are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now you might say, well, this is all in the Old Testament, right? How, how, how does this have to do with the whole scope of God's plan? But what I want you to see is this is starting to connect the dots throughout salvation history. As I mentioned in, in Sunday school, there is a critique of, of covenant theology that it's, it's about Adam and Jesus, but after Genesis 5, Adam seems to go underground and then he pops up in Romans 5 or Romans 15 or as Dr. Tiffin will argue, Luke 3, and say, well, where's Adam the rest of the place? I actually asked that question when I was going to seminary to my professional testament. Where'd Adam go? Well, it's not as if you know, God had made a good creation with Adam and then tried something else. What we see is that, no, Adam is connected to Israel. You see the, the, the tabernacle and creation. Now, now, we would say they're different covenants. There was the covenant of, of, of works, and then there's the covenant of grace. There was a difference. But what I want you to see here is that the goals and the categories are the same. It's not as if just God was just throwing things against the wall. Adam didn't work. No, it didn't work. Abraham, David, Jesus, that works. Church. And that's different. No. No, that's a continuation between Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, David, Jesus. They're all, all, and so all who are connected to Jesus in the past and the present are the people of God. There is one plan from creation and then the new covenant of, of grace, Israel, Christ, the church, the goal is the same, Sabbath rest for the people of God. And when you begin to see the continuity from the very beginning, you realize how the old and the new are connected in profound ways. Right? And in that way, the tabernacle begins to think a little bit like home. Now, it's not enough. We don't stay there, but it tells us our purpose. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we come to John 1, where it says the word became flesh and he dwelled, he tabernacled with us and we beheld his glory. Because that's what we were created for from the beginning. And we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus says, I am the temple and now the church is the temple. And when Jesus says in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. God dwells with us now in the Spirit, the fulfillment of his goal from creation. Right? As Confession 7 6 says, there are not two different covenants of grace but one the same under various dispensations. And so we see God has a plan. He knew what he was doing throughout all history. And his desire for you is the same as his desire was for Adam. Rest in his presence. And so as we see how Leviticus takes us back to Eden through sacrifice, it's a homecoming. And I pray that as we begin our journey into Leviticus, you will see how Leviticus and you are connected to God's incredible plan of salvation. And that way too you will feel a little at home. Yes, life as God's people was different before Jesus, but this message, life in his presence, is the same. So let us pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. Inspired, infallible, cuts to our heart as a two-edged sword. Stretching throughout all of created history, we see your beautiful plan. Father, we're humbled that you have included us with us. That just like Abraham and then calling your people out of Egypt, you too have called us into your kingdom, into your church. And so would we stop and would we remember the joy of our salvation and that we and our birthright is to have rest with you because that is what you have brought about in Jesus our Lord. Would that frame our mindset of joy and determination as we go out to serve you this week. We pray this in his name. Amen.